Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. This is part two of a, a really impactful, just amazing episode series that I'm, I'm just so pleased to be able to do. This is with Dan Brown, and he's the author of 24 books. He's actually studied molecular biology, religion, psychology, and he's been on the faculty of Harvard for 40 years as an associate clinical professor of psychology, and he teaches hypnotherapy uh, and has for many years, along with multiple languages, Buddhist meditation master, uh, translated original texts, and one of the most amazing people that you've probably heard on the show, uh, as well as just a, a master of, of how we get to be who we are and things that are going on that we don't know about. These are the things that are likely to stop you from being bulletproof, but they're things you might not even see until someone shines a light on them for you. And Dan has spent a lot of his life uh, creating that kind of light. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk in this episode about some of the things we just couldn't fit in the first episode. And you talk about relational maps, about the ways people connect with each other. I want to go deeper with you on that. What is a relational map? What is a relational map? There are two relational maps that develop. The first one develops around 18 months, which is prior to the most of the development of narrative memory. So it's called an attachment map. And there are four types of attachment. Secure attachment is an interplay between healthy attachment to the caregiver. And the more the paradox of human, human attachment is, the more secure you feel in the attachment relationship, the more you become independent and explore the world. So the more secure you are, not the less secure you are, the more you become independent and explore the world. That's called secure attachment. There are three versions of insecure attachment that can also develop. One is where the attachment system is, is, is taken offline, and that's called dismissing attachment in adults. And they don't do relationships. They might stay in a relationship, but they don't talk about themselves. They don't, they don't bring their feelings into the relationship. They can't be real in a relationship. They stay remarkably distant even if they're in a relationship. So they deactivated the attachment system, and they become sort of pseudo-independent in life. So it's sort of exaggerated exploratory behavior, but not in the context of healthy attachment. What they can't do is explore it in the context of relationships. The opposite, the mirror opposite of that is somebody with anxious preoccupied attachment. And they have a weak sense of self, and they get over-involved in the state of mind of the other. So they get become chronic compulsive caretakers in relationships at the expense of themselves. Codependent types of people? Yeah, they get very clingy in relationships. Yeah. So what they, what they have is... Uh, weak sense of self-development, so they've, they've deactivated the exploratory system, and they get over-involved over in the attachment system, they get very clingy in relationships and very jealous, and they can't let go of the relationship. They don't have, they don't, what, what's missing is they can't grow, they can't develop the sense of self in the context of a close relationship, so they've deactivated the exploratory system. The third type of insecure attachment is they've deactivated both the exploratory system and the attachment system, and that's what you see with mostly people who have traumatic attachment. So that's what the, the, the impossible dilemma for them is that the source of attachment is also the source of fear and terror. So they can't ever get soothed in the relationship. So they expect to be hyper vigilant and fearful of the attachment relationships, but they can never settle into the relationship and develop a sense of themselves. Those are, those maps are in place by about eighteen months. Wow! And, but that's prior to when we get to know the insight into them. So that 
that prior to what we call a narrative memory, but they're, they're what we call an active memory. We, we live them in our relationships in one of those four types. Once that map develops, the chances are it's, it's very stable. We have 40-year post-traumatic studies showing that these maps, have, three or four of these maps will stay the same for over 40 years without changing them. So if you have a dysfunctional, insecure attachment, the likelihood is you're going to play that out one after the other in every relationship you're in. Then there's a second map that comes up later. This happens in the third and fourth year of life. We can take in much more complex messages and emotional ideas and develop limiting core beliefs about what's possible and what isn't possible in relationships. And that's called the CCRT map, the core conflict relational theme map. So the way that works is you take a history of all intimate relationships in a person's life. So maybe they have 15 intimate relationships in the course of their life. And you read it like you step back and read it like a musical score. And what you see is it's not all over the map. There's one or two essential themes, infinite variations on the same two themes. And uh, so it affects how we select relationships. We select relationships wanting something, and we, rather than getting that, instead we, 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 we create the same core conflict over and over again. It's either one or two patterns usually. And so there are two types of types of relationship dysfunction, attachment maps and core conflict relationship scene maps. And the simple way of putting that is the difficulty with relationships or difficulty within relationships. So okay. if people have an attachment problem, that would, that supersedes the other problem because they don't connect easily. But once they connect, even if they, they, if they have secure attachment, the likelihood is very high. You want to keep selecting for the same old time with dysfunctional relationships one after the other. Relationships is purposeful. We select unconsciously to, to play out the same old conflict over and over again rather than working it out. So in therapy, you want to build a new map. You want to build a new attachment map or a core conflict relation thing, a positive map. The person can make that as the basis of operation and operate out of that positive map. And that's what we do in psychotherapy or in relation to disturbances. There's two main types of relation disturbances. Either attachment disturbance or core conflict relational team disturbance. What is the fastest way, typically, I know it can be individual, for someone to uh, to create a new map? We call it, we call it positive remapping. Okay. So if you just, I differ from most of my Western psychology conflicts where I have a background in Buddhism. And in Buddhist Abhidhamma, the theory of mind, it says that the techniques to work with positive states and the techniques to work with negative states are not reducible to each other. So if we work with techniques to work with negative states, we, and, we, and we're successful with that, we get a relative reduction of it, maybe even the absence of negative states. But the absence of a negative is not a positive. So too much of emphasis in the Western psychology is on trying to develop, uh, looking at the dysfunctional maps. And if we, when we do that, we can reduce the noise in the system, but that doesn't make a positive map. So what we did is moving in a totally different direction. We have to really visualize ideal parents if they have an attachment problem, if they have a disorganized attachment or anxious, preoccupied attachment or dismissing attachment, having developed ideal parents that they do all the right things in attachment. And if they do that visualization over and over again, once a week in a session and maybe every day on their own, as we make a recording of the session, they practice it because then you got to practice things learning. There's learning to practice it. You have to practice it many times. If they do that over and over again, between six months and two years later, they made a new relationship map, positive map, and it's stable. And they begin to make that the basis of operation. And then whatever dysfunctional patterns is just irrelevant. They don't go there anymore because the feedback from the positive state works much better. Wow. So it can be done pretty quickly. Yes. And the, the research on core conflict relations the theme now shows that you change it in about 50 to 30 to 50 hours. It's the average time it takes. All right, fifty hours is doable. There's kind of a reputation in the West. People say, you know, I, 
I sat on a couch once a week for 20 years and not that much changed, but I felt better for a little while each week. And is that a problem with techniques? It's a problem with techniques. I, I did that. I spent nine years on the couch four times a week. It's a problem with techniques. I, I did that. I spent nine years on the couch four times a week. And by the eighth year, I just said, I can't go on. This is, this is too expensive and too much time. <laughs> yeah. So I told my analyst I was going to stop in another year. And she didn't take that seriously at first. And then she began to take it seriously. And then she began to use all the things she'd taken notes on all the years. Explain it to me. And I said, well, why don't you do this earlier? This would have been much more useful. <laughs> we just finished another year. It, is there an inherent conflict of interest when you pay someone per hour to help you get better? No. No? Okay. I don't think so. I don't feel like any healer I've ever met would ever consciously say, oh, I'm going to slow down your healing to make more money. But I've heard people say that. And and I, I think it, it takes a lot of work and desire uh, to become a therapist. It's actually hard work even just to do your own therapy to become a therapist. So I don't think that's a real issue. But man, I sure hear people talk about it. So Yeah, but the better, the better therapists don't do that. I've done, I've, done therapy for, I've done therapy for 50 years now. Yeah. So now what's, what's important for me is, is that there's a clear vision I have of where the person needs to get to, and I don't waste any time getting in there. So I move and, them along the map, because as soon as they get better and they get on with it, life is better for me and better for them. Yeah. And plus, you like to help people. Wouldn't you like to help more people, not less people? It, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I agree with you. That, that makes good sense. I just wanted to, to ask that on behalf of listeners who've asked me the same thing. Uh, when you talk about being your best self, uh, which is also a little bit different than some of the therapeutic, you know, let's fix what's wrong with you perspectives. You've done a pretty incredible amount of work there. So what does it take in order to, to be your best self? Uh, I trained in the 1970s and 80s. And I was at the University of Chicago in the 1970s. And my, my mentor was Erica Fromm, the great hypnoanalyst. I worked with her for 36 years. And she died when she was 92. Wow. So we had a long relationship. She was my main clinical mentor. And she did very short-term focus work with visualizations and hypnosis and got people better in short periods of time. But then when I did my first clinical placement at Michael Reese Hospital in the big south side hospital in Chicago, my clinical supervisor was Heinz Kohut, the pioneer who developed self-psychology. Wow. He came from an analytic background, and I spent nine years on the couch with a self-psychological analyst. It takes forever to do that work. But I was left with putting together two worlds, the short-term world of visualizations with hypnosis in the long-term world of self-development. And at some point, I, did, I tried to pull, forge the bridge between those two worlds. And I read something in uh, about self-esteem development. It came from Joe Sandler at the Hampstead Clinic in, in London. And he said that self-esteem is the developmental linkage of positive emotions to the self-representation. That's the developmental outcome. What does it mean? It means that when we develop a healthy sense of self-esteem, if I conjure up a sense of dandness during the day, well, you conjure up a sense of Davidness. If you have healthy esteem, you conjure up against the backdrop of your positive feelings. But if I don't ever, if I never develop the healthy self-esteem, when I conjure up that sense of self, I conjure up against the backdrop of no feelings. Or I conjure up against the backdrop of logic negative feelings. But what I can't do is conjure up against the backdrop of positive feelings. That's what's missing. So where does that come from developmentally? I began to look into that. And it came from what we call one of the five great functions of attachment, which is what I call express delight. Healthy parents are totally effusive all of the time about everything that their kid does. It's a positive sense of joy for them and delight. But they're not only delighted about the child, what everything the child does, they're delighted about the child's being. And they're constantly effusive about that. 
that gets internalized. So the child figures out at some point that all that positivity is about themselves and itself. And that forces that link. But the reason why chronic self-esteem failure, which we call narcissism in the West, is such an epidemic in the West, is that we don't do that because parents are too busy. So they involve themselves in the job of parenting, but not the joy of parenting. That's what's missing in this culture. And that's why what? narcissism is such a, a, a rampant disease in Western culture. What's the, what's the fix for that? We began to think about how to link a positive emotions to the self and self to self. We did that with first with this, just focusing on self-development, and then focus on self-development in the context of attachment. But what we began to say is, if I say to you, bring to mind a scene where you feel really good about yourself, especially good about yourself, and have you imagine that scene now, you can do that. You're associated with some activity. You're doing something, and while, as long as you're doing that, you can feel good about yourself. But you can generate the feeling, and you can generate the feeling with some intensity, and you can hold it for some period of time. So I have you do that many times over and practice it during the week. So you're actually intentionally generating positive feelings that was directly associated with the self. That's how specific these protocols. Once you can do that readily, then we'd have you to focus on generating a good feeling about yourself in the context of relationship. That's harder. You hold that. A third is what we call skill development. Generate that sense of self, the positive sense of self, more quickly, more frequently, for longer duration, more immediately, frequently and for longer duration. And the ta- task is you have to keep generating it over and over again and hold it for longer periods of time. Then we give you homework assignments to, to generate it during the day and see how long you can hold it for. And keep a journal, how long of the day do you, you can hold it for. And at some point, you hold it more than day than not. And everything shifts at that point. We're holding a good sense of themselves most of the time. Not all of the time, but most of the time. And then we look at the times that they can hold a good feeling about themselves. And we have them, rather than analyzing that and saying these are the negative patterns, yeah, we, we, we positively we wrap right over those patterns. We say, okay, now put yourself in a situation where you normally don't feel good about yourself and hold a good sense of yourself and see how long you can hold it for in that situation. So the demand becomes to hold it in the situations that they're less likely to hold it in. And the last part of the protocol is what we call shifting from doing to being. Holding a good feeling about yourself just in who you are rather than having to do anything to get it. Once they get that and they can hold it most of the time, they've repaired the esteem. It takes about six months to two years to work out that protocol. But if what we're talking about is Repairing chronic self-esteem failure in that period of time, that's worth it. Six months to two years, and you're doing what, one hour a week of working with a therapist? Yeah, one hour a week, and then after a while, we cut it down to once a month. Okay. They, they do the visualization more on their own, so they get the sense of that they're doing it rather than I'm doing something to them. So it's a dedicated practice that someone chooses to do. And, and I've had friends who've, who've gone through this, and you see a, a massive shift even in the first few months, but by the time it's done, their ability to have relationships is very different than it was before. And they, they seem much happier, much happier than people who maybe haven't focused on that kind of a path. And they're sort of saying, yeah, I, you know, I, I go to a therapist for sometimes, but it, it seems like there isn't a, that training that happens outside of the room. And what you're doing there is really teaching awareness. It sounds almost Buddhist. <laughs> what are, what's well, your mind teaching, doing right now? What's your mind doing right now? Yeah, but it's no more specific than just to being aware of it. But to change it and to put a, a positive in. map. We're making a positive map. That's, that's what's unique about these protocols. Wow. How would someone go about finding a therapist capable of doing what you just talked about? We have a website called the Attachment Project. Okay. If you go on the Attachment Project, you can, there's a relationship a quiz. It's actually... Self-report quiz that's widely used in the clinical field. It's called the experience of close relationships, and they can take it and get a self-score. 
is a much more accurate version than self-report because sometimes self-reports are accurate. People have believed themselves to be securely attached and they're really not. Mm. So the best way of doing it is what we call the adult attachment inventory. And that takes about two hours to administer and score. You need somebody who's trained and certified in that. But I do that a lot on this website. I, I like doing it. I've over a thousand of them. scored over a thousand of them now. Wow. So it, it's something, if you're listening to the show and you're saying, all right, I don't have the best relationships, <laughs> you might want to work on hacking that and getting the data, knowing what's going on. And for me, understanding that the stuff that happens in the first 18 months, uh, and then again at age three to four, that that is such a big explanatory factor for why you may think the things you think or feel the things you feel about yourself I picked this up when I was about 30. I, I learned that. And I actually started crying at, at the time because <laughs> it, it was it was one of those things where like it wasn't my fault. And I, I had a lot of negative self-talk. And you realize, okay, uh, it's it's changeable. Um, so you're listening to this going, I've mastered my physical body and you know, I'm doing the bulletproof diet and I'm doing my breathing exercises. All of those are good things. But if this stuff is there, it's not like you chose these things. It's that they're in there. But knowing that it's changeable and it's not 25 years of suffering changeable, but it's changeable in a year or two, I find it pretty liberating. And Dan, I think you're one of the the masters of of getting in and what's really going on in there and, and mapping this out. Well, the last 20 years has been a movement in positive psychology. I yeah. happen to think that positive states are far more important for mental health than negative states. But the field has come from focusing yeah. entirely on negative states, and I don't think that's useful. It, it's kind of built into our society. You look at Google, their their original tagline was, don't be evil. But they could have also just said, be good. <laughs> one of those is positive and one of those is negative. Right. And I, I like the be good side of things. I agree with you. You focus on a positive map and then that, you get feedback that that's working for you. You don't go back to the negative map because it doesn't work as well. Okay, here we go. Is there a visualization or some type of, of exercise that people could actually hear on the show today? Let's just say more things about the sense of self before we do the visualization. Okay, then let's talk some more about the sense of self. There's a line of self-development. It starts with self-definition, knowing who you are. Knowing what qualities represent the best self. Then the next thing is what's called self-agency. That means you feel like you have an impact on the environment around you, the world around you in general. And then more specifically, that you have an impact on the relationships with others. You're actually listening to the kind of responses you want in relationships with others. So that's called self-agency. And the third is self-esteem, feeling good about yourself. So if we, do, we, we look at those three as developmental steps in the variant sequence. So the first would be knowing who you are. Second would be knowing who you're about, what you're about. The third would be feeling good about yourself. And those are separate developmental levels. So if we have somebody with a significant lack of self-development, significant self-pathology. You have to find out where they are on the map. Some people, they have a sense of, they lack self-esteem, but they have a good sense of agency and a good sense of self-definition. And what they'll do is they'll use agency to compensate for the fact they don't have any esteem. So they're always having to do new things to accomplish things. They have to hold a good feeling about themselves and just in their being. You see a lot of people like that. They're very successful in what they do. They can never feel good about themselves. So, so you, you can you can be really insecure, don't feel good about yourself, so you want to prove things to others. So you go out and you become very successful in the world because you're you're sort of fighting against that internal feeling you have. You're always troubling yourself up, you know, pun intended. I see that a lot. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, have that. You know, that I'm, I'm going to go out and prove to the world that I'm right. uh, better than I think I am. Well, they don't hold a good sense of themselves and they're being. 
who say they have chronic self-esteem failure. They're always having to do, so they're unhappy because they're always having to do something new. And they're only successful to the extent it was successful in the current project. But they can't right. just feel good about themselves and hold that as a backdrop of their positive feeling all the time. That's what's missing. Yep. So they're never self-content. They really feel good about themselves. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's rough too because once you get on that path, if you're doing a whole bunch of work things, when are you going to find the time to do the work on yourself? And that tends to be the work that gets deprecated. Right. So then you never get out of that trap because you're just too busy to pay attention to yourself. And then there are people who have self, largely self-agency failures and they don't be successful in love and work. They don't ever get, they don't get together and do things that have made an impact on the world around them. And then we have people that lack self-definition and they don't even know who they are. They never developed a sense of self and they, a strong sense of self in any way. Just lost. So those are the three failures. Failure of self-definition, failure of self-agency, or failure of self-esteem. What causes each of those failures? Is there an age or is there an experience? Why is this happening to us? Because it has to do with attachment. It's all about attachment. Okay. There are five great functions of attachment. We talked a little about that last time. Safety and protection is the first. Careful attunement to one's behavior and one's state of mind is the second. Comforting, verbal reassurance and physical connection when, they, when they're feeling upset, emotionally upset. The fourth and the fifth are the ones that are relative to the sense of self. The fourth is expressed delight, which is related to self-esteem development. And the fifth is that the best children who are healthy attached, the parents are, bring out the best of their self-development. They're the champions of the sense of self in the child. They know how to foster the right conditions for the child to explore and to discover and make their own mistakes and discover who they are. The opposite of that is a parent who have agendas for the child. They, 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 they decide who the child is supposed to be to meet their needs. What Alice Miller called the drama of the gifted child. So you have to go up to be fulfill your parents' needs and you never develop your own sense of self independent of them. So we have a lot of people out there who have needs to have their kids turn out to be a certain way. So that's what causes a failure to self-development. Or we have parents who let the children explore, but they don't, they're too busy to get involved in that. So the kids grow up with a lack of esteem and always having to do things to prove themselves to the parents and to everybody else. So it's a failure of attachment ultimately. Wow. So either uh, you got to explore, but you didn't have a parent exploring with you, uh, which is going to create a problem, or you didn't get to explore because you were already on a path. But the message I want to give is these things are all very fixable. We can be, we can be very yeah. precise in terms of what's wrong, and what we to pitch the, the visualizations, and we can correct them. It, that's why this interview had me so excited why I wanted to be on again. It is fixable, and it's fixable in a reasonably short period of time, uh, so that if any of those those three descriptions fits you listening to the show, look, it, it's sort of like I have a you know a problem with my shoulder. You'd go to a physical therapist and you fix the problem with your shoulder. This is a similar type of healing where it's diagnosable, it's quantifiable, and you do the work and you get better versus just living with the pain or the suffering all the time. And it's, it's big work, man. You, you change enough people who don't act this way, it changes all of society. It's a big, it's a really big thing. But you see, we come from a tradition in psychotherapy where most therapists don't get the training. We have 50 years of good outcomes research. That's what did Harvard Medical School, but then it's continued education for the last 30 years. So I get actually paid to read all the outcome journals. So almost wow. every diagnostic category, we know exactly what to do. Maybe the exception of schizophrenia, we know exactly what every other psychiatric diagnosis that we have, we know exactly what to do with these patients. And we can get them there. But most people go into therapy and never read out any of the literature. They just say, we'll just talk about feelings. And they think that's therapy. 
<laughs> I'm so happy you're saying that so I don't have to because you have the credentials to say that credibly. Uh, but it, it is exactly uh, what my observation uh, over my much shorter life has been uh, is that talking about your feelings probably isn't going to solve them if they're not doing what you want them to do. And so you have this this map of, of what to do about it. Um, are you frustrated uh, that more therapists aren't using this set of tools? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Um, are you frustrated uh, that more therapists aren't using this set of tools? No, it's gotten better. It's gotten better? Well, I think what, what frustrates me is that the people who are very carefully clinically trained do this on their own. They get ongoing supervision. They learn they're always learning new things. But then what happened about 15, 20 years ago is that to make insurance cheaper, make treatment cheaper, they, they took people now, not with PhDs, but with master's levels, and they, they got them all licensed across many states. So now they've watered down the credentials so that they get cheap therapy. And that's what we're paying for now. Mm-hmm. So really, the, the good therapists was a smaller number. But we can't discriminate anymore. The general public does not tell the difference. Well, help listeners know, how do you, other than going to your website, it's attachmentproject.com. You have a list of people that you certainly um, have looked at. Um, how how would a, a lay person know? All right, I've got someone who's really seriously... Get a consultation. Go to a senior therapist who's got really good credentials and get, get an opinion from him about who to see and what, what to focus on. Oh, interesting. Okay, so for, even if you have to travel a little bit or, or do something remote, but find someone who's incredibly well-credentialed and say, look at these people I'm thinking of going to and sort of get a, a referral out or... Let them do the intake and focus on what the map is, somebody who's in order to do this stuff. And they'll say, this is the person you should see and this is the approach you should take. Man, I, I wish I had done that. The idea of getting a map to know what type of therapist to see is really cool and, and really useful. So I thank you for offering that to people listening. And any, city, tell- any city, there are yeah. well-known therapists who are well-credentialed. Well Everybody knows who they are. Okay. Go to one of the senior people and then ask them for an hour just to, to do a diagnosis and intake. And then wow. match with somebody. That's the best way to do it. Trust, trust their seniority. That is, that is so smart. Uh, matching, uh, just getting the right diagnosis. I, I really wish I had known that when I was doing all of my work because what a lot of people end up doing is they're looking at cost, uh, insurability, or they're sort of stumbling around. But even if you do pay out of pocket for one hour of someone's time to help you know what type of person to go to that it may be in plan, that can make a big difference. Or maybe it's out of plan and you do you do that instead of uh, you know, alcohol for a while or whatever else, but you make it work because short period of time, relatively short, you know, a year isn't that short, but it's not that long either. And man, the, the difference in freedom that comes from you know, knowing who you are and having self-agency and being able to have healthy relationships is, uh, uh, is, is life-changing. What, what percentage of people do you think 
it takes having done this kind of work, having their attachments healthy, does it take to sort of shift the the nature of society? You mentioned there's so many narcissists running around today. The world seems pretty crazy. Do we need 20% of the world to be self-attached for things to shift? Well, I teach a course on leadership. I teach a course, I have three versions of it. I teach a course on performance excellence for surgeons and primary care docs at the medical school, which I've done for 30 years. Another version of that I teach for judges. I've done most of the judges in Massachusetts, the Superior Court judges, the District Court judges, and the Family Court judges. I have a third version of that for executives that I teach all around the world. So the issue of how we train leaders is important to me. I think we need to train leaders who are psychologically mature, who can, are not self-absorbed with themselves, and they can see the larger vision in life and lead us in a positive direction for the sake of not their own self-importance, for the sake of the larger vision in life. Most, most people who are leaders operate out of a larger vision in life maybe a spiritual vision or some sort of large civic vision of life. But there's a lot of research on developing a larger vision in life, and that's important. So it's a leadership issue, then, getting our leaders to, to do this work. Yeah. Uh, would you encourage senior executive teams at, at larger companies to actually pay for their executives to go do this kind of work? Yes, because I, I used to work as a consultant for a large, large multinational company, international company, had seven large companies. I won't mention the name of it. Sure. But it was helpful to him. Because if he hires somebody to put in one of his parent companies, that's a lot of money. I remember a story where he was hiring somebody he really liked a lot, and the guy was a mover and shaker, but nobody else liked this guy. Mm-hmm. And he said he was a, a prisoner of war in the Korean War. And he's, they didn't want to know how fragile he was because he talked about his prisoner of war background. But he was he was definitely moved things. And, but... So I did an evaluation on this guy. He flagged all the all the self-report scales. So I said to the, the head of this company, I said, I don't I'd hate to bust your bubble here, but I don't think this guy's telling the truth. I think he's fabricated a whole story about his life. Wow. And he looked into it with private investigators and he said, you know, you know, you're right. He didn't have any military history. He was never a prisoner of war. Thank you. You saved us a lot of money here. Wow. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I ran into that early in my career. We had a guy who claimed he had actually the same thing. He was a, a special forces uh, or Navy SEAL or something like that at a senior position in, in a company. And it was just not true. And I actually, I found out, and, and I'm 25. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> this guy's like 10 layers up in the org. Uh, but with my sense of justice and all, I, I you know, flagged the issue uh, confidentially and uh, you know, with, with a couple of trusted members of the executive team and said, like, I know this to be true because I work in computer security and computer security people know these things. Uh, and yeah, it, it actually happens. People completely... It took, a, it took a certain courage on your part to, to persist with that. Uh, well, I didn't get fired that. for it, but he didn't get fired either, which was a sign that our leadership was not healthy. I really respect what you did with that. Thank you. I was frankly scared shitless, <laughs> but it was the right thing to do. But you persisted. Yeah. It was the right thing to do. Yeah. Most people won't do that. Yeah. Do uh, appreciate that. Uh, well, th- thanks. Uh, I, uh, I'm not sure what motivated me to do that. Thinking back on it. Because it, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. So I'll, I'll go with that. There was probably some ego in there too. Like, you know, that, that's not right. But it was a sense of justice and it was the right, right thing to do. Uh, I, uh, I am with you there in that I believe that it is worth it for uh, for senior executives uh, in companies, you know, to help support each other and to s- help support leadership. But in this case, if you were hired to do work or to do an analysis of this guy, um, how does that work with HIPAA and and disclosures? I mean, did did the guy agree that he'd work with you and that he'd share with the boss? 
Yeah, I have to. I get that up front. I have to get those agreements up front, otherwise I won't do the work. So you just have him sign a contract that says, "Yeah, he's gonna. You're, you're gonna talk with. You can talk with Dan, and whatever whatever you share is is fair game, kind of a thing." That's that's what I do. Okay, very it's cool. Just part of informed consent. I, the best informed consent is transparency. Yes, a hundred percent. I, I really like that, and I I do believe in investing in that. If you have a someone who's great at what they do, and, and they're you know leaving uh, leaving bodies everywhere they go at work, either you fire them or you help them get better. And if it's one of these problems, and it's an hour of diagnosis, if they're committed to doing the work, you work with them on doing the work um, if they have the courage. I, one of my colleagues, and we did some of his research together, was David McClellan when he was at Harvard. He's now deceased, but he did work on motivation. He said there's two hundred people in the world. Those who are power motivated, and those who are affiliatory motivated, mm. and the affiliatory motivated people are not interested in power. They, they, don't, they don't. They don't take positions of leadership, but they should. People who are interested in power are totally insensitive to other people's needs, but they like to be in positions of power. So we always select the wrong people. We should take affiliatory people and train them to be leaders, because we know by, by they will be being hard, and then they're going to be much better and more sensitive to leaders. But we always select people who are power motivated, and it doesn't work very well. I've heard of some some smaller tribes in Africa who would select their leadership that way, where the the people would select the person who least wanted to be the leader because they were the most affiliatory, uh, and the people who really wanted to be leader, like, no, you're going to lead us in the wrong way. We we don't want a power monger there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Then. Yeah, uh, I I always approve of that because it it always it it just feels sort of bad. Someone who really wants that, well, why do you want that? Um, I can't imagine a worse job than being president, uh, <laughs> but maybe that's just me. I ran two departments at the medical school in the 1980s. And I hated it because I wasn't power motivated. I just yeah. never liked the job, but people felt that I treated them well under them. Yeah. And they could they could be different from me and they could disagree with me and that was perfectly fine. I bet they liked it, even if you didn't. And I think that, that may the, be that's the, true. That's the inherent true. problem. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure which of those two spectrums I fall in. I, I pretty much don't care greatly for, for the, the power of leadership, but I think it's important to create a, an organization of good people who can do the good, you know, can do good work. Um, but that means I have to hire people who are good at the power thing to help manage all that. Otherwise it becomes a little too much for me. You want to do an exercise, right? Yeah, let's do an exercise uh, about the, the best self-visualization. I, I really want people who listen to this to, to get just a, a drop of the feeling, or maybe more than a drop of of what uh, what we're talking about. Okay, so settle back into your chair. All right. And by the way, if if people are are going to participate along with this, I'm assuming they need to not be driving. Turn turn off the world so you can't be driving. No. Okay, good deal. So if you're listening to the show while you're driving or something, or at the gym or something, you probably want to save the rest of this episode for when you can sit down in a quiet place. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go first. So tell me what to do again. Settle back and. Focus on your breathing. Just observe the natural rhythm of your breathing. And when you breathe in, the eyes will open. And when you breathe out, the eyes will close. And just get really, really used to that now. Completely absorbed in the rhythm of your breathing. And tuning out all of the distractions, just focusing on the breathing. And now, when you breathe out, put a little more emphasis on the exhalation. See if you make each successive outbreath a little bit longer, a little bit slower than the previous one. Just a little bit. As you begin to slow down an outbreath, you get increasingly calm and relaxed. 
And at some point it was completely natural to keep the eyes closed and focus more inward. And when you focus more inward, you feel even more calm and relaxed. Completely absorbed in that calm, relaxed state. Focused without distraction. And while you're in this focused, relaxed state, free of distraction, bring to mind the time in your life that you felt you operate out of your best and strongest sense of self. The time when you brought your best self to whatever you were doing at the time. Let's revisit that in your memory right now. And the more you reflect on this scene, the more you generate that feeling of that best self, that strong sense of self, right now, once again. So as soon you begin to really feel it. Feeling it more clearly and more intensely, the more you focus on it. You notice that it comes with a backup of a good feeling. best and stronger sense of self. And the more you hold this in your awareness continuously, the more you see that there are certain qualities you associate with this best self. And you can give voice to those qualities. Silently to yourself as you identify each and every one of them. But most people can identify three, four, five qualities associated with your best sense of self. So begin to do that now. Your best, strongest, most independent sense of self. The more you reflect on this, you'll identify certain characteristics of that best self. And these will become more and more familiar to you the more you reflect on them. See if you can identify three, four, five of these qualities, the best self. Soon the scene's going to change. You're going to imagine something in your current life. It's important to you. You can imagine bringing that best sense of self right into that situation. So you operate out of that best self in that situation. So now imagine the scene where you bring that best sense of self into this current situation. Notice how that changes everything about your experience about that situation. Notice how your best self approaches this, but your ordinary self doesn't. Familiarize yourself with the best sense of self in this situation and all the influence that it has.
How different that is from your usual sense of self, your ordinary sense of self. Now the scene's going to change again. Next now, next next thing, imagine yourself at some time in the future, a time in the future when you develop this best sense of self, so it's even stronger and more independent. And you fleshed out all the qualities of that best self, even more than you have done today. Imagine a scene you operate on that best sense of self in the future. Notice how it affects everything in your life. So now create a scene. You operate on that best and strongest sense of self in all the ways that you can. You get a taste for what that feels like. Hold that sense of self clearly in your awareness. Make a deep imprint of it in your mind. So you hold this as a vision that you can do, do, grow and develop into. Now let it go and relax. I'm going to count from five to one and you can awaken yourself. At which one you'll be fully awake and settled with your experience. Beginning to awaken now. Five. Four. Waking up more and more. Three. Two. One. Fully awake and settled with your experience. So it's rather simple visualization. You imagine some situation where you operate on the best sense of self and most people can readily identify that. Maybe a golf game, maybe a tennis game, maybe something you did civically with some group, maybe some teaching that you did, whatever. And then, we, then you transfer it to the current situation. We want to bring that best sense of self into the situation. This is an exercise that I did with the judges that, that is one of the favorite ones. They might, they might have a, be really on the game in golf or tennis, but they bring that state of mind onto the bench. They're much more present. They don't get bored as much. So I imagine them bringing their best sense of self into the courtroom more and rehearsing that and developing it over time. And they don't get so bored and they do a better job with being on the bench. That makes so much sense. It's funny you mentioned teaching because that I, I've learned when I'm doing this kind of work, I always you, you go with the first thing that flashes into your head, even if it doesn't really make a lot of sense because your unconscious throws that up there for a reason. Uh, so I haven't thought of it in a long time, but the first time I got a standing ovation at the end of teaching a class at the University of California, um, which is uh, which is a, a great honor as a, a teacher uh, when your class is like, oh, it was that good that, all right, I'm there. So that was what popped into my head. And you mentioned teaching as one of the things. So there you go. You uh, you must be psychic on top of everything else. You know that you've been doing this for a while. <laughs> now, this is an example of the the kind of things that you uh, uh, that that y- you can do in a, a therapeutic session, and I think there are some things you can do when you're um, uh, things you can do w- with audio files and, and various things online. Is that something that you do with the attachment project? I mean, are, are there Dan Brown audio files you can listen to you guiding people through this. I've there's a lot of them on, on the website. We're putting everything on the website. Got it. I did a two day course on performance excellence, and I have a seven day immersion course for executives. Well, these are courses, but they're all they're all they're, they're mostly structured visualizations. So you can do the whole set of them. We try to take the best of emotional growth and put it on 
translate it out of, the, out of the office and put it on the website where people can actually do the exercises. I, th- I think that's really powerful uh, in, in terms of doing a course and just doing the uh, the exercises separately. And maybe that's just built into the courses. After our first interview, I was so uh, I was so impressed, and I said we've got to do a second one. Um, I asked your team if you guys would do a discount for Bulletproof Radio listeners, and you kindly said yes. So 20% off the online course at attachmentproject.com. Go attachmentproject.com slash Dave. Because uh, I, I think this is really worthy, and it's it, it's worth your time if you're thinking about what should I do uh, while I still have time at home, or what should I do even if I'm really busy. Uh, attachmentproject.com slash Dave, and just use the code Dave. And if you have any of the things we've talked about now and newsflash, if you're alive and you haven't done a lot of personal development work, I promise you, you do. I know that I had a whole bunch of these things going on in my life. Uh, and I think I've succeeded in many of them. And there's still other ones where it's a continuous process of growth. So I'll tell you, if you've never done any kind of personal development stuff, you need to get going on that. And you need to get going on it because you'll be happier and you'll like your life better, but uh, more, maybe more importantly, everyone around you will like it as well too. So it's your impact on the world changes when you do the work. I'm trying to take uh, 50 years of what we learned in statistics and ecology and put it on the practical exercise that people would do in terms of structured visualizations. In fact, that's the best way to put it. Uh, you guys all know the, the ROI, the return on investment for the show my deal with you is if you don't get more out of Bulletproof Radio, the hour or so you've been listening, than, than an hour's worth of time and value, you should unsubscribe. You should stop listening. Uh, and I, I mean that same thing. Don't go to my blog if it's not worth your time uh, because I'd rather do something that's more useful. So same thing here. You want 50 years <laughs> of knowledge and sorting out all this stuff compressed into a very short period of time. It, it's a very high ROI on on those courses and the same thing if you decide to read one of Dan's books, uh, one that's appealing to you. Same thing. It, it takes a very long time to write a book and a very short time to get the knowledge out. So in terms of you becoming enriched, that's how I'd recommend you do it. And uh, Dan, I, I want to thank you for walking me through that exercise and for sharing it with listeners. And guys, uh, that discount code is just there for you to save money. There's no financial arrangement or anything like that. It, it's just because it's worthy. And I think you're worth uh, the time to listen to this episode and to create this episode. I think you're worth the time to go out and do the work. And I just uh, really appreciate you, appreciate your work, and thank you. Yeah, you really good skill interview. I really enjoyed being with you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.